Hebrews chapters 7 and 8, and in this particular portion of the book, we are looking in particular at the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews introduced um, Melchizedek. In chapter 5, verse 6, speaking of Christ, the writer says, As he has said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there were many things that the writer wanted to say, but in the next verses he says that he cannot do that because they are dull of hearing, and so he takes a detour through chapter 6. But at the end of chapter 6, he comes back to this, this description of Jesus made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's great significance here with what he is saying. It's historical, but it's also... <clears throat> here for our understanding of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the importance and the supremacy of his high priesthood. Now, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an unusual name. I do not know of anyone named Melchizedek today. You may, but it's a very unusual name. He's only mentioned in three passages in the Bible, the first, of course, being in Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham met him after returning from the slaughter of the kings there, where Abraham was rescuing Lot. He's also mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4. And then he is mentioned here in the book of Hebrews. But I want us to note here, the beginning of chapter 7, it says, For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, abideth a priest, uh, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." I'll point out grammatically that this verse, these four verses, are one complete sentence. The subject, Melchizedek, the verb, abideth, and then last phrase, a priest continually. What is he saying? He's saying here, Melchizedek abideth a priest continually. Everything else in between is a description of Melchizedek. And so you need to watch the grammar here as we go through this. But I want you to notice Melchizedek's description. He is described in his position as a king and also a priest. That's unusual because in the Old Testament, as we look at the Levitical priesthood and under the law that God gave Moses there on Mount Sinai, kings and priests were a divided, uh, they were divided offices. And there were a few times where kings tried to interfere or usurp the authority of a priest, um, King Isaiah, one of them, and they were smitten of God. Jeroboam, as he was, of course, leading the northern tribes into idolatry, was another king who was offering sacrifices as a priest, but there was a division, division between those offices. But here, this Melchizedek is a king, <clears throat> king of Salem, or Salem, uh, by definition, the word means peace, but it was the old historical Jerusalem, before it was called Jerusalem. Here's Melchizedek. He's a king, but he's also a priest, a priest of the Most High God. 
And the meaning of his name is significant. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. And of course, Salem, meaning peace, a king of peace. We also note his genealogy. It's not given. There is no record of this man's parentage, nor is there any uh, record given of any descendants. He's without father, without mother, without descent. There's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. All that we know was he was a priest of the Most High God, and he was a king. And of course, because of this, he is used in the Scripture as a type of Christ, a type of Christ. There are some who believe, oh, well, he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ on earth. But that is a wrong view, and especially as you look at what the Scripture has to say about him, he was a man made like unto the Son of God. He was a type And he had an unending priesthood. How did he have an unending priesthood? Because there is no record of his death. And it's very significant that his priesthood did not terminate. And we'll get to that. So here's Melchizedek. He's introduced. And of course, the writer of Hebrews takes us back to the well-known passage of him meeting Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. And we're not going to turn there by, because of time constraints, but I want us to note how it describes him and his superiority beginning in verse 4. Hebrews 7, 4, he says, Now consider how great this man was. How great was Melchizedek, <clears throat> unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Remember, Hebrews is being written to Jews, Jewish believers, Jewish believers who are being pressured to go back into Judaism. And he wants them to remain faithful to the faith. And he informs them, he says, listen, Melchizedek. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Well, who would have been greater than Abraham other than God? But here Melchizedek is presented as a spiritual superior to Abraham. Abraham pays pays tithes to Melchizedek. Under Old Testament law, tithes were paid to the priests, those who are of the tribe of Levi. He says this in verse 5, Verily they that are the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment. What's the commandment? To take tithes of the people according to the law, even though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But in this particular instance, and of course, Abraham predates the law. Abraham was way before Moses. But he whose descent is not counted from them, he's not related to Abraham. He received tithes of Abraham. And not only did he receive tithes of Abraham, he turned and then blessed Abraham. Pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. And without all contradiction, verse 7 says, And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and we see here in this passage a level of spiritual authority or superiority there to that of Abraham. Verse 8, he goes on, Here men that die receive tithes, speaking of the Mosaic law. Again, speaking of the Levites, collecting tithes of the people. But there, in this instance with Abraham... He, Melchizedek, received tithes of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, 
Levi also paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So in these verses, <clears throat> the author of Hebrews is setting up Melchizedek to be far spiritually superior to Abraham. Now that's significant. And the significance is seen here in the next passage or the next part of this chapter. Melchizedek's superiority, because he is going to contrast Melchizedek's priesthood with the Levitical priesthood, which came from the law. So there's two orders of priesthood. One is Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, and then there's, of course, the order of Aaron, or the Levitical priesthood, which was prescribed by the Mosaic Covenant, or the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Look at the contrast that we see between these two priesthoods in verses 11 through 17. If therefore perfection came by or were by or were a result of the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Why do we need another priest called after the order of Melchizedek if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient? And you see, where is Melchizedek mentioned other than in Genesis? If it was just Genesis, well, that would be one thing. But David, in Psalm 110 and verse 4, says this. And this is, like I said, the other mention of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 and verse 4. It's a psalm of David. And he says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent will not change his mind. He has sworn with an oath. And his oath was to the Son, as we see in Hebrews. And what was the oath? The the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David wrote this while there were... Jewish priest, he wrote this while he was under the law. And yet he says there is someone coming who is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that was designed by God. And God wasn't going to change his mind about it. So who is this? Look at this comparison in Hebrews chapter 7. Perfection did not come through the Levitical priesthood. Now when we talk about perfection, what are we talking about? The law, the Levitical priest did not provide perfection, look at chapter 10. I know we're looking ahead. This isn't fair. But to look ahead to reference what we're talking about in chapter 7, look at 10, 1 through 4. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the thing can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. What is the job of a priest? What does a priest do? He's a mediator. He's to bring two parties together. A mediator between God and man. The Levitical priesthood could not rectify the sin problem that separated man from God. In fact, as we see, as we go through the passages in Hebrews, we see it was a type. It was a shadow. It was an example of the reality. A spiritual heavenly reality. 
In verse 2 of chapter 10, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If perfection or completion, complete reconciliation to God, came through the Levitical priesthood, then there would have been no more need to keep offering animal sacrifices. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscious, conscience of sins. That would have been completion or perfection. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Every year that atonement was offered. It's a reminder. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. There it is. Perfection could not come through the Levitical priesthood. So back to Hebrews 7.11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, why would we have needed another priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron? <clears throat> now, remember, Melchizedek predated the law. But now after the law had been given, David speaks of a priest arising from the order of Melchizedek. And it was necessary. But note verse 12. This would be a change of the priesthood. Look, when we're going along with the Levitical priesthood, it was prescribed by God under the Mosaic Covenant, under the law. You, the priest could only come from the tribe of Levi, and the priests, the high priests especially, the, they came through the house of Aaron. Had to be through Aaron. Now, it says in verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. If you're going to have another order of priesthood, then what are you going to do with the law? The law prescribes who the priests are, what tribe they come from, and specifically what family they come from. So if you're going to have another priest that arises after the order of Melchizedek, well, you're going to have to change the law. And again, it says here, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of what? The Lord came from the tribe of Judah. You never saw any priests that were from the tribe of Judah. They never worked in the tabernacle. They did not work in the temple. They couldn't be priests. Wrong tribe. But Melchizedek didn't come from the tribe of Levi either. Moses spake nothing of another tribe from which would come a priest. And that's verse 14. And verse 15 says, And it is far more evident for that after the similitude or the likeness of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, or I might say in my own words here, who is appointed not after the Mosaic covenant. Or the law given on Mount Sinai. There's another priest. And he is appointed, not after that law, but after the power of a what? An endless life. After the power of an endless life. Now, 
If the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed. Earthly priests ordained by God could only come from the tribe of Levi. But here's this priest, Melchizedek. It's not of the tribe of Levi. And not only that, the greatest significance of this priest, there's one thing that keeps being mentioned over and over. Let me see if you get it. I'm going to read to you four passages, and I want you to know what is common in these four passages, because this is the key to Melchizedek. In chapter 7, verse 3, Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Verses 16 and 17, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless endless life. For he testifieth, God speaks, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verses 24 and 25. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And then verse 28, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. What's the key feature that keeps being mentioned about Melchizedek? He's eternal. He does not die. He has an endless life. He ever liveth to make intercession. He continueth ever. Here the key point being made about this priest is that his term does not end. Melchizedek has an endless life, or the priest after the order of Melchizedek has an endless life. And of course, who is he speaking of? Well, we know he's speaking of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to note verses 18 and 19. We're going to deal here with the law. Because we saw, there's got, we saw there has to be a change of the law. If there's going to be a different priest who does not come from the tribe of Levi, then something has to happen with the law. What happens to the law? Verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, for the law made nothing perfect. There it is. What are we going to do with the law? How does the law affect this? What, how, where does the law come in here? Because Melchizedek is not of the tribe of Levi. We have a problem. So what happens to the law? Well, the Mosaic covenant, or the law, is disannulled. It is rendered inoperative. Why? Well, look what it says. Is disannulled because of the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. Oh, the law is weak? The law is unprofitable? What's wrong with the law? I mean, you go back to verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, if, and it wasn't, so the law did not accomplish perfection. The law did not make man right with God. The law did not bring man to God. It didn't. The law made nothing perfect. 
Now think about that. If we stop right there, remember what Paul got in trouble for when he was preaching? He's teaching people to disregard the law. And the Judaizers were going around causing all kinds of trouble because Paul was preaching that the law was done away. How could he do that? He should be killed. They're all up in arms about this. Now, the Mosaic covenant or the law is disannulled. It could not bring about perfection. In verse 12, we see that it must be changed if the priesthood is to be changed. And in verses 18 and 19, we see that the law was weak and unprofitable in bringing about perfection. So if we say all these things, what are you thinking? What is the point that we must consider? What was wrong with the law? Wait a minute. I thought God gave the law. Wasn't what God gave holy and perfect? Is there something wrong with the law? Boy, it sure sounds like it. It was weak. It was unprofitable. Well, as we study Scripture, what do we find? We find that there was nothing wrong with the law. Nothing at all. In fact, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, Paul says this about God's law. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the law that God gave. What does Psalm 19 say about the law of the Lord is perfect? The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are clean. I mean, the law is perfect. Nothing wrong with the law. So then why does it seem like what Hebrews is saying is contradicting that? Because the law was weak. It was unprofitable. It needed to be done away with. It needs to be changed if we're going to have another priest from a different order. Well, the problem isn't with the law. The problem actually stems from two things. And the first is, we need to have a proper understanding of God's purpose in giving the law. What was God's purpose in giving the law? This is the real key. The law was given for what purpose? In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Paul says, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So, what was the purpose of the law? Well, the law defines sin. Where there's no law, there can't be any transgression of the law. And so what was God's purpose in giving the law? Number one, it was to define sin. Not only that, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So here is another purpose that God gave. Not only was it to define what sin was, but the law was given to reveal the magnitude of man's sinfulness. The law entered, what? That the offense might abound. And when we look at the law, what happens? We see ourselves as guilty sinners through and through. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. This is what you've been taught all your life by your religious leaders. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
And then Jesus turned and said, But I say unto you, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Guilty. Oh, wait a minute. He says, The law also says, And you have heard, Thou shalt not kill. Well, I've never killed anybody. I'm innocent. But if you have hated another person without cause, you're guilty of murder. What? What did Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? He began to, he, he showed the people that the law was not designed just as an external code to live by. It was something that dealt with man internally and rendered all men guilty. So the law defines sin. The law was given that the offense might abound, that man might see how exceeding sinful he was. But not only that, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, Paul says, For the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to what? To Christ. The purpose of the law, it was a schoolmaster. It was a tutor. It was to point us to the real solution. The solution wasn't the law, but the solution pointed to man's need for a savior. And so here... What's wrong with the law? I mean, he, he says the law was weak. It was unprofitable. It could not make men righteous. In fact, it had the opposite effect. It rendered all sinful, all guilty before God. But that was God's design. That was God's purpose in giving the law. You see, the weakness of the law is not God's fault. or It's not a fault of the law. It's a fault of sinners. Because man cannot keep the law. And of course, what the law could not do, what and what's the, what's the rest of that verse? In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering condemned sin in the flesh. God punished sin in human flesh. That is the whole purpose there of the incarnation. The law was weak. How was it weak? Because it had sinners to deal with. Man could not keep the law. The law was just and holy and righteous. It was given by God. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with the people. So what the law could not do, Jesus Christ accomplished. And so here in Romans chapter, I mean Hebrews Chapter 7, note verses 18 and 19. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, the Mosaic law, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. And I stopped right there, but note the next half of verse 19. But the bringing in of a better hope did. Did what? Brought perfection. The bringing in of a better hope did. What's the better hope? It's that priest that we're talking about who comes after the order of Melchizedek. This is how perfection comes. But the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not, an, not without an oath, he was made priest. And so here... Jesus Christ is presented as that high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a superior high priest. He is far greater than Aaron. 
the first high priest. He is greater than all the Levitical priests. In fact, he, sur he surpasses the law. He is of a different order. And perfection did not come through the Levitical priesthood. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. It accomplished what the law could not do. And so here, verses 20 through 28, the end of chapter 7. Verse 21, those priests, speaking of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, were made without an oath. The, Leviticus, the Levitical priests were priests by birthright. It was completely by relation to Aaron. That's how he became a priest. You didn't apply. You didn't go to college to major in priesthood and become a priest. It wasn't the highest of the class who got to be the No, it was the sons of Aaron. Those Old Testament priests were made without an oath. But this, who is this? The priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, with an oath by him that swear unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And verse 22 clinches it here, if there's any doubt in your mind. By so much was Jesus made the surety or the guarantee of a better covenant. It says the word testament there. It means the same word as a covenant. There's a better covenant. A better covenant than what? Than the Mosaic covenant. That law that made nothing perfect, the one that's disannulled for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, there is a better covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic law. Now, <clears throat> remember, this is one of the two oaths of God. The one was given to Abraham. And we talked about that back in chapter 6. God made the promise to Abraham, and because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. But the other oath that is spoken of in Hebrews, which is one of the two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, was his oath to the Son, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here at the end of chapter 7, Jesus Christ became an high priest appointed by God. And remember, there are no priests except those who are appointed by God. Chapter 5, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God. And a priest has to be appointed by God. There are no self-appointed priests. And Jesus was appointed priest by God and confirmed by his oath. He goes on here in chapter 7, verse 23, And they truly, speaking of the Old Testament Levitical priests, they truly were many priests. There were a lot of them because they were not allowed to continue because they died. But there's a great difference between the Levitical priests and the priest, Jesus Christ, who is after the order of Melchizedek. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And what are the results? Well, because Jesus, our high priest, never dies, therefore, what? He is able to save them to the uttermost. Guess what that means? That's the definition of perfection. When it says, if perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what need would there have been of another priest arising out of the order of Melchizedek? 
But that priesthood was weak. It was according to a, a law that was weak, unprofitable. But our high priest, Jesus, the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek, is able also to save those who come to him and save them to the uttermost, to completion, perfection. He is able to reconcile man to God. The blood of bulls and goats could not. Those sacrifices were over and over and over. But this man, one sacrifice for all time, does what? Reconciles man to God completely. That's the perfection of which we are speaking here. It's not talking about, well, you never make a mistake the rest of your life. It's talking about completion, complete redemption, complete reconciliation, the whole duty of the priest as a mediator. Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator because he reconciles man to God. He completes that. So Jesus, our high priest, he never dies. Therefore, he is able to perfect those who come unto him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And then the last three verses, for such an high priest became us, who is, and look at the description, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus had no sins to to be forgiven from. He did not need to first offer sacrifice for himself, as we talked about that Old Testament high priest before he went to the atonement to offer for the people. He had to offer for his own sins to even be acceptable to God to offer for the others. But here is Jesus. And he is not limited by the curse of sin as were those Old Testament priests. They had to offer for their own sins. And then verse 28, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. The Old Testament law made men high priests that came from Aaron. Aaron was a sinner, and so were his descendants. They were all sinners. Every one of those priests were sinners. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, God's word, God's oath maketh the son. And it was since the law, it's after the law, the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Now that's a lot to chew on, folks. But we're going to move directly into chapter 8. So hold on to your seats. Here we go. All right. So he, then he comes into chapter 8 and he says, Now, of all that we've just said, this is the sum. Okay? So here's the main point. So don't miss this. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. There it is. Jesus Christ is the great high priest and he is exalted and he is ministering where? In heaven, which is the what? The real tabernacle. Wait a minute. What do you mean the real one? I've never seen it. Well, what have you seen? Oh, I've seen the tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle, yeah, picked that thing up, and they walked around all the time with that. And, and then we had the temple, and everybody could see that. It was built out of rocks. You could feel it, touch it. And, but that was the real thing, right? No. That wasn't the real thing. 
Jesus is our high priest, set on the right hand of God's throne in the heavens. He's a minister of the true tabernacle, the temple which the Lord built in heaven. We're going to see that in a couple more verses. Let's continue. Note verse 3. For every high priest is ordained, and this is, he's just describing the job of a high priest. Every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for man. Chapter 5, verse 1. So every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So if Jesus is a high priest, then he ought to have something he offers, right? Because that's the job of a mediator. But if he were a priest on earth, he couldn't offer anything. Note what it says in verse 4. If he were were on earth, he should not be a priest. Jesus Christ cannot be a priest after the order of Aaron. No way. If he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. The Levitical priesthood had to operate according to the law. Therefore, the Levitical priesthood was the only priesthood that God ordained on earth, of which Jesus is not a part. He is after the order of Melchizedek. He does not operate as a priest on earth in an earthly tabernacle. Where does he operate? Where does he minister? In the true sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Look at verse 5. He's speaking of these priests on earth that offer gifts according to the law in 8.5, who serve unto the example and shadow of the reality. Who serve unto the example and shadow of what? Heavenly things. What is he saying in this verse? That earthly tabernacle, that earthly temple, that earthly order of priests after the law of Aaron, that was all just a shadow. It was just a picture. It was a representation of the reality. Folks, we don't fall in love with pictures. Men, when you married your wife, before you married, you maybe had her picture. Oh, look at it. Oh, so nice. Oh, she's so lovely, so beautiful. But is that what you fell in love with? No. You weren't satisfied with the picture. You wanted the reality. And this is the significance here, is that the t- earthly tabernacle and all the Old Testament rituals prescribed by the law was just a picture It was just an image, an example of the heavenly reality. And he's going to go into detail on that in chapter 9. Come back next week. Okay, so here, verse 5. These people, these, these Levitical priests, they serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. He's up on Mount Sinai receiving the instructions from God. And God said to him, See that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. It's a copy. It's just a pattern. It's a picture. It's an example and a shadow. Ah, this is where it really gets good. Note verse 6. But now hath he, speaking of Jesus, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises 
Wow, if this doesn't give you chills, then you're not following me. Here's what's happening here. He's describing Jesus, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is the mediator of something that replaces that which was weak and unprofitable, that which could not bring about perfection. He is the mediator of something better than the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai. What is it? It's a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, Jesus' ministry as high priest is far more excellent than Levitical, than the Levitical priesthood because he is the mediator of a new covenant, which is based upon better promises. Let's look at a comparison here between that Mosaic covenant and whatever this new covenant is of which he speaks. We need to know why one is better than the other. And he's got to explain this to these Jews. These Jews have grown up knowing the old covenant, all the ways, the means, the wherewithal. They've grown up, been raised under what? Old Testament Levitical law, the whole system of worship which God prescribed. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a new covenant. Look at verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So there was a problem. We've already talked about this, but he's reiterating this. There was a problem with the first covenant. It couldn't bring about perfection. It was not faultless. That does not mean it was sinful. God gave it and he designed it with a specific purpose in mind. And to understand the weakness of the old covenant, you had to understand God's purpose in giving it. We did that. You're all remembering this, right? There's a lot of material, I understand. But here we go. The old covenant in verse 5 is described as an example and a shadow of the reality. And it was not faultless. Now hear me well. Everybody pay attention to this. Listen very carefully. Eyes all open. Look right at me. I want you to hear this because this is the key. The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the covenant on Mount Sinai, I'm saying that this is all the same thing, was a conditional covenant. It was a conditional covenant. Now that right there, folks, is profound. I should have you just say it back to me. It was a what? A conditional covenant. It's important to know that because there is a difference between an unconditional covenant and a conditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. Don't you forget that. Take it to the bank. The Bible says it was a conditional covenant. Let me show you. Here it is. It was a conditional covenant. There were requirements placed on both parties. There were two parties in that Mosaic covenant. There was the part of God, and on the other hand, there was the part of the children of Israel. They enter into a covenant. Both of them have requirements that are required for that covenant to be in force. Go back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. This is so good. This really is, it, it's just... It's so profound. This is the word of God. This is God's plan. It's divine. It's awesome. Here it is. Exodus chapter 24. Moses is reading to them what God had given him on Mount Sinai. 
And here, Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. We will obey. Look at verse 7. And so Moses, of course, this is a covenant, was ratified by blood. Verse 6, and in verse 7 it says, And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. This covenant, the Mosaic covenant, made a requirement upon the children of Israel. And it was a requirement of what? Obedience. It was a requirement of obedience. Note Deuteronomy chapter 27. Go over to the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm going to try to narrow it down a little bit because chapters 27, 28, and 29 all detail the conditions of this covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Note verse 1. And Moses with the elders of, the commanded, of Israel commanded the people saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. Go on, look at chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. And it shall come to pass, if, see that if? It's conditional. If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. <clears throat> it's conditional. If you obey, God will do this. Two parts to the covenant. And then note chapter 29. Chapter 29 and verse 12. There it says, he's in kind of the middle of a sentence, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. Now, the Old Covenant was conditional. God promised blessings if the children of Israel would obey His law. It was a conditional covenant. Not like the Abrahamic covenant. When God told Abraham what, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, when God gave His covenant to Abraham and He swore with an oath, you know, surely blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee, and in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. God didn't put any requirements on Abraham. He didn't say, Abraham, if you'll do this, I'll do this. There was no ifs. It was an unconditional covenant. It didn't matter what Abraham did. God said, I am going to do this, period. All the responsibility was on God's part. Not so the Mosaic covenant. It was conditional. Now, so it was a conditional covenant. The requirements for both parties. But as we read here in Hebrews chapter 8, if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Well, what was the fault? What was the problem? Well, the very next verse, for finding fault with them. The fault came on the part of the Israelites. They did not obey. Simply put. That was their responsibility. God says, I'll bless you. You're to, I'm giving you a command. You obey it, and I will bless you. You don't obey it, obey it, and then, sorry, the blessing is gone. 
that covenant is revoked because of your failure. You did not keep your part of the covenant. In Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, it's kind of like a sneak preview of what's coming. Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, then verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. What did the law do? It was, it was not faultless because of who it was made with. It was made with sinful people who could not keep the law, and therefore the promise is by what? Faith, not works. This is God's design. So here in verse 7, the first covenant, it was fault. There was a fault for finding fault with them. In verse 8, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And who gave that prophecy? That was Jeremiah. Clear back in the Old Testament, God said, I am going to solve this problem. Of course, it was his plan from before the foundation of the world. But the problem with the law was the law was going to re render everyone sinful. The law was going to show the Israelites that they could not be reconciled to God in their own strength because they were sinful people. <clears throat> the law accomplished its purpose. It rendered man sinful. That's the purpose of the law. If there had been a law given that could have given righteousness, well then perfection would have been by the law. But that's not the kind of law God gave. Therefore, God said, I am going to make a new covenant with my people. Jeremiah, and here he describes it here in chapter 8. The failure of Israel to keep the law voided the Mosaic covenant. 8, 9. Look at verse Look at verse 8. For finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come when saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at verse 9, so descriptive. Not according to or not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? The first covenant, Mosaic covenant, Sinaitic, the law. I'm going to make a new covenant not like that one because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. They broke the terms of our agreement. They agreed. They said, all the words of the Lord will we do. They said it over and over. They broke the terms. Therefore, the covenant is null and void. But I'm going to make a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be what? Unconditional. Now, let's think about this. I had to say this before. The Old Testament was, the Old Covenant, conditional. But the New Covenant is unconditional. Ah, oh, that, folks, is a huge relief. The Old Covenant puts some responsibility on man, and man fails. The New Covenant puts all the responsibility on God. 
And he never fails. It can't be voided. And then verse 10 through verse 13. And this is glorious. This is the description of the new covenant. Here it is. This is what God has laid out. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. There it is. The new covenant a covenant made with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and by extension, it is a covenant made with all believers. You say, well, hold on a second. He didn't mention all believers in here, did he? He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to Hebrews. But you look at what the scripture says. What was God's covenant with Abraham? In thee shall what? All nations of the earth be blessed. Gentiles enter into this covenant because... By faith, we are united with Christ. Romans, Romans chapter 11, 17 and 18. We are grafted into the vine. This is a covenant with all believers, not just the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Yes, it was primarily designed with them in mind, but not only with them in mind, since before the foundation of the world, God had our salvation in mind also. And here it is, this new covenant. Look at these features, God's law written in their hearts. Not inscribed on a, on a stone tablet, but inscribed on the fleshy tables of the heart, as the Bible talks. It internalized. Think about that. The Sermon on the Mount. It's internal. It's a covenant that renders man perfect before God. They will be God's people, and He will be their God. They will know the Lord. And then finally, and this is probably the most important part of it, I guess if you can say one part is most important than the other, God will forgive their sins and remember them no more. This is what makes the new covenant perfect. It renders us justified. It renders us righteous in the sight of God he will view us in Christ as being sinless. And we will have fellowship with God. We can come boldly into the presence of God. You could not do that in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Not a chance. But here, because of Christ, our mediator, the mediator of the New Covenant, these are God's terms. And you note in this passage, he never says, if, if you do this. There are no responsibilities placed on man in this covenant. All of the responsibilities God takes unto himself. And then that last verse here of chapter 8. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. 
Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Speaking to the Jews, it says, listen, this whole system of worship is done away. We have a new high priest. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. He ministers in the true sanctuary in heaven. That's the reality. The old covenant, the old covenant could not render you perfect. But the new covenant, God will look at you as though you have never sinned. He will remember your sins no more. This is the new covenant of which Jesus Christ is the mediator. So therefore, Jesus Christ is far superior to the Levitical line of priests. He's far superior to Abraham. He is the exalted one sitting at the right hand of the Father, our personal mediator, our personal priest. Who is your priest? Is it Jesus? He's the only one appointed by God which brings about true reconciliation of man and God. What a wonderful passage. I mean, like I said, that took some time, but we kind of went through chapters 7 and 8 in a hurry. But that's what it's all about. And then he's going to go on into chapter 9 and give us more detail about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. What a blessing, though, when you consider the new covenant. And the new covenant being an unconditional covenant provided by God's grace. What a wonderful, wonderful passage. And if you have any questions about it, we have our discussion time coming up after the service after lunch. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful description here in Hebrews of Jesus Christ, a priest ordained by God, far superior to that order which was prescribed by the Old Testament law. And Lord, we thank you so much that he is the mediator of the new covenant, which is based upon better promises, promises that will all be kept because they are not dependent upon us, but they are guaranteed by the very word and character of God. Lord, we thank you for salvation. Thank you that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.